Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. open with some kind of monologue today uh, because I already know Peter Kapsner is in the studio with Paul Perot. We're going to jump immediately to an open mic conversation uh, with Peter so I can thank him for covering for me last week. So thank you, man. Hey, no problem, Carmen. It was so fun to be with your listeners and, and just the different guests. You guys do such a great show here in the morning. So it's fun to just be in, in the chair for a week. What was your what was the highlight for you? Well, for you? I, I mean, for me, Daryl Strawberry yeah. and Friday. Are you kidding me? I just uh, he's a you know, <laughs> big shocker, right, Carmen? Oh man, I I felt like a kid in a candy store. And I think one of the things that was so fun about it is maybe the two or three minutes that I had a chance to just speak him and me before we started the actual segment. And he was just a genuinely delightful human being. He's somebody who has seen the depths of sin and pain and sorrow in his life, and to come out the other side to have such a, a sort of an inner fire for the the things of Jesus. To, and he was quoting scripture, just not just quoting it, but but sort of teaching from the original languages of it, maybe without realizing he was in the languages. It was it was just really fascinating to, to talk to somebody like that. And of course, you just have a, such a range of people day in and day out that some of which are, are capable of commenting on politics. Uh, I love talking to epidemiologists that just the whole range of people. Uh, it was really a fun two hours every day. All right, and then um, I got a video of you preaching a sermon on Sunday. You did? Really? I did so I'm going to function. Yeah, can you believe that, that churches will let me do that from time to time? It's, I know I'm it's gonna, a little stunning to you and Paul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to function here like the Danish government wants to function and, um, and have you now submit your sermon manuscript oh. <clears throat> so that I can determine uh, whether or not you know, the things you said were, I don't know, up to snuff. Yeah. Um, you, you preached on a passage from the book of Acts, uh, which talks about um, Gamaliel. Am I right? I, that is correct. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I did. It was from Acts 5. It's the end of Acts 5 where there's this this budding movement of the disciples that are clearly demonstrating a power that was maybe a bit unfamiliar to the religious leaders of that day. But the, those religious leaders were interpreting that power through the lens of the fact that a political kingdom was coming to to sort of upend Rome, and Gamaliel was among them. And it was just a really interesting study to get with people like Craig Keener, who's such a well-respected biblical scholar to point out that Gamaliel, like many, all the way through the ministry of Jesus, were missing the point all along, that that this was a kingdom that would have implications within the political structures of the day, perhaps, but it was functioning entirely outside of it. And, uh, and it was just an interesting passage to look at, that how many people were looking at the ministry and message of Jesus, assuming that he'd be working through the earthly kingdoms of the day when he was doing something entirely different. So, um, first of all, you did a really good job, and I appreciated the sermon, and um, and so just wanted to commend you uh, on that. Uh, and, and I also, I, I felt like the the constant question of what kind of kingdom is this? Right. What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is this? And then if you fast forward, um, knowing what we know now about the way people like uh, the one who becomes the Apostle Paul. So, the way Saul's life is yeah. radically and utterly transformed 
by Jesus and and how even the the disciples who sort of got there first um, prior to Paul had to then adjust again Incredible, the way they right? thought about this king and the kingdom. What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is this? Um, what are we talking about now? It's not just a Jewish movement. Um, there are Gentiles involved, and there are Jews who come to faith like uh, like Saul, um, who then God lifts up and wants to allow to lead and do things that the rest of us maybe we're not either capable or well positioned to do. It is pretty extraordinary. It really I, I, I just yeah, it's it, it really is. Yeah, I just yeah. one last piece I know we've got to run to break, but I just find it fascinating that Jesus' first words uh to his followers on the on the Sermon of the Mount is blessed are the people who know they don't have what it takes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they begin to hunger for something different. They begin to walk in God's kingdom in a different way. And you see that with Paul, right? He gets knocked off his horse, he realizes how poor in spirit has become, and God just unfolds this beautiful thing in front of him into the future. Hey, I will be the one who says when we go to break, by the way. <laughs> and I okay, will so submit time... all future sermon manuscripts to you <laughs> before I get them. <laughs> oh, my. All right. I'm going to be back with Peter Kapsner in just a moment. Dr. Peter Kapsner is with me, and because he has uh, a, a PhD, he has been to some school. I and have. So, way too um, much, Carmen. I way know. too so, much. We're going to go back to the beginning, Peter. This I call this uh, this portion of our conversation old school. I would like to know uh, the name of the first school you attended as a child. Ah, uh, it was it was Birchview Elementary School, right, uh, Carmen, Birchview. and I was five I, years no, old. The, yep. Okay. Go ahead. I don't need. Don't, yep. yeah, this is this is this is quick. this is rapid fire. Next okay. One? Yep. Bert, Birchwood, what's next? Uh, it was St. Bartholomew's Catholic uh, School. Oh, all right. Now we're in. I got a problem. All right. St. Bartholomew, <laughs> yep. what was next? Mm, uh, I think it was uh, Wyzetta East Junior High came next. All right. Wyzetta Junior High yep. East. East. Right, East. Uh, Wyzetta mm-hmm. High uh. School then. Yes. East and West came mm-hmm. together to form a high school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then uh, after that? Mm-hmm. Uh, then it was Mankato State University. All right. Oh, and after that, uh, Bethel University. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, uh, uh, Bethel Seminary. Mm-hmm. And after that, <laughs> the University of Edinburgh. All right, are you done? I, I think I so. I mean, you're still in school. We still make you go to school, so no, you're indeed. now at the University of North, uh, University of Northwestern St. Paul. That's correct. But you're there as a professor, which is probably scandalous um, <laughs> on every level. Yes, but, indeed. But you have a curriculum vitae that would suggest. All right, he's been to a lot of schools. Now, um, if I were to do the same thing, I would have to offer up. Um, Dale Mabry Elementary. I don't actually remember the name of my kindergarten. I'm gonna have Dale to Mabry. Home. Dale Mabry okay. Elementary, and uh, and then Coleman Junior High School probably had a name in front of Coleman, but we just called it Coleman. I'll have to look that up. That might be a scandalous one. H. B. Plant High School. Uh, and so again, I'm gonna have to look that one up. Uh, based on the, we're gonna talk about a decision by uh, the school board in San Francisco, right, right, to rename schools. That's where this is all going. Um, and then I went to the University of Florida. And uh, and then I went to uh, Princeton Seminary. So there you go. That's my uh, that's my little curriculum vitae in terms of <clears throat> where I went to school. 
And some of those now would be scandalous. Some of yours are scandalous for sure. For sure. Based on a decision by the school board in San Francisco to remove the names, to dename some uh, 42 schools. They have changed the names of 42 schools. Actually, they've just denamed them. They haven't renamed them yet. So I guess these schools are currently without name. Um, uh, They have denamed 42 schools, including schools named after, I don't know, the likes of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, um, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who was their own mayor for a whole period of time and is their current sitting U.S. senator. What's going on? Yeah, it's it's part of a movement that's been going on for a while, right, Carmen, to sort of revise or re-understand or reimagine our history in our country. And I don't know how you're processing all of this. I think I, I look at it and I, and I try to look at it in a fair-minded way and try to sympathize with the position that would like to see a renaming of some sort. I think one of the issues we might run into is there isn't any single individual after whom we could name any given institution that at the end of the day, you would not find some significant flaws in their character because we all share the the sinful reality of the human condition. So what happens if we switch a name to some other name that we think, well, these are sort of our modern ideas of who the heroes were of the past. And then we start delving into their life and we find some measure of scandal. Now, that does not take away from, I think, what is a very important reckoning and, and, and question that we have about racism in our past and our country. That is the topic of the day. It is something that we need to think through. But I, I think to, to suggest that we can change names from one individual to another and, and not then also find flaws in their characters. And, and I think so that's one part that I really wrestle with, where I really sympathize that we have a painful history. And, and I think that's just objectively true on some levels. What we do about it is a little bit different. And, and the other sort of angle I've been thinking about quite a bit is that to the extent that this movement involves shifting of one power for another kind of power, and it's, it's, it's tearing down somebody else's power so that you can gain power, that kind of idea often involves a, a, a violence of the spirit. I mean, I, I think on one level there has to be compassion and, and all of that involved, but we, we see a lot of violence of the spirit one towards another going on in our country from all sides of it. And I keep thinking about one of my favorite quotes from a German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, that I've quoted a number of times, but he was somebody who participated in the violence of Nazi Germany. He also then got captured and was in a British POW camp. And so he was both on both sides of it. He was both victor and victim. He was both oppressor and oppressed. And he said at one point, so the cross, at the cross, we find room for both the oppressor and for the oppressed to open up a free and sympathetic humanity. And, and, what he was talking about there is that all people, whatever position in life you find yourselves, we need to come to the cross together and find a different way forward together that even in the great pain we've caused one another, we maintain being for one another on some level. So these are hard conversations, Carmen. There's no way around yeah. it. There's a lot of different angles. Um, I think that for those listening um, who want to know more about this, you can actually just go to the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle and read the article um, the list and litany is long. It it's is. worthy of noting that everyone on the list is reduced to um, basically the words that would fit in the box of a spreadsheet. Um, and so uh, and, and let me just I, I'm going to read one one thing here because I, I'm pretty sure you will be able to identify this quote. Uh, and this is from The Washington Post reporting on the same story. The panel voted six to one to approve the plan, which calls for removing from schools names of those who, quote, engaged in the subjugation and enslavement of human beings, oppressed women, committed acts that led uh, that led to genocide, or who otherwise significantly diminished the opportunities of those amongst us 
to the right uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you recognize that walk-off phrase? Uh, I do. I mean, it's right, right in the principles of the foundation of our country, right? Okay. Written by Thomas Jefferson. Of course. Who, by the way, is on the list of names removed from schools. I, I think because he's because he's reduced in the spreadsheet to one word, and that is slave owner. Exactly. And and I want to be very quick to say, chattel slavery is absolutely horrendous, horrible, awful, inexcusable, unacceptable, whatever derogatory and dysphemistic words you want to attach to it. I'm comfortable with. Um, but you cannot reduce Thomas Jefferson to that one word. He is also the person who wrote the words upon which the decision-making of this group completely rests. Right. And many of these other uh, people whose names were removed, you know, they're the ones that brought the railroad to San Francisco. They're the ones that uh, that made it that, I mean, San Francisco exists in no small measure because of the people who were on this list. Can I highlight one more before we go to break, since it's my show, not yours today? <laughs> so have you ever heard of James Lick? I, the name, it does ring a bell. This is, th- it does? Well, I think so. Yeah, I don't keep know. going. He was like a really rich guy. He was a really rich guy who lived in San Francisco. Okay, this is all I, This is like all I know about him. Um, and his name is on a middle school, James Lick Middle School, or it was until the decision was made to take it off. Yeah, no, I've heard, well, yes. Okay, so James Lick died a really long time ago. He was long dead when some of the people who were stewards of his of his money left behind uh, which maybe is an indication that you should just spend all your money while you can be the steward of it because the people who end up being mm. stewards of it do things with it that in the future will cost you your name being on a school because that's what's going on here. So people generations after he died used some of his money to pay for a statue, which is now in storage, which is a statue that is considered racist, um, and it's called the Early Days Statue. Uh, the school board says that because his money, after he died, some of his money was used to fund this racist statue that's now in storage in San Francisco. His name must come off of the school. Mm. And I got to tell you, yeah. that is that is not an accurate representation nor portrayal of the individual. It's a reduction for sure. It's it, a reduction. It's a reduction of yep. a person. Yep. Anyway. All right. So uh, we got other things to talk about with uh, Peter Kapsner in just a moment. We'll be right back. I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. It felt good to be out all right. One of the things that I love about Peter Kapsner is that he is a guy who likes to laugh and can laugh at himself. And so when I saw uh, the headline about the ultra-Orthodox comedians who are uh, satirizing their own community on YouTube, I thought, well, I'm going to want to talk with Peter Kapsner about that. Oh, they're great. We need a little, we need a little humor today, and this is uh, like sort of like religious uh, humor uh, of the best kind. It really is. It's it's so fun when people who are sort of insiders in a situation can also sort of stand outside their insider status <laughs> and kind of poke fun at it, right? I just, it, it's, be, I don't totally. know what that speaks to, but it really makes me laugh. And and when it's not bitter, cynical kind of thing, it went, when it just is more satire and when you know they still really love being a part of the community that they are a part of. I just think that is some of the most mature kinds of looks at life. It, it is not taking things too seriously. It has wisdom associated with it. it, it they, I think, are people who really are deadly serious about their faith at the same time. But gosh, Carmen, there's something about laughter, right? I, I, 
I don't know how to think about it entirely other than to say that I get concerned about where I may be in my, uh, even my formation, my spiritual journey, if I can't laugh somewhat easily, if, if there's an encumbrance in my life going on that prevents me from laughing, or if my laughter is only related to the tearing down of other people or, or sort of bitter and cynical. And I just think it's such a hallmark of people who are following Jesus that it doesn't mean that they're their lives are easy all the time. It doesn't mean that circumstances aren't going to um, really sort of press and pressure them in so many different ways. But boy, for the people that can still walk through life with a sense of wonder, laughter, and humor, those people I know that I have observed in the course of my life, I just think that's the kind of journey that I want. It, it, it means that I'm anchored somewhere different if I'm able to laugh with relative ease. And we actually have been talking about that with my students quite quite a bit is, yes, go learn the scriptures. And and yes, uh, enter into theological conversations and get into the very serious things of the age. But, but to do so as a person of good humor who, who, is a, who has a ready and quick laugh, I think is a really interesting journey to consider in terms of how we consider our lives moving forward. So uh, I know that Paul is familiar with Lutheran satire and those videos. He is indeed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul, you want to weigh in here? Uh, sorry, I was distracted when oh, you brought up Lutheran my name. Satire. So. Oh, Lutheran satire. Yeah. Lutheran satire. Yeah. Right? So you guys can check out the Lutheran satire uh, videos. I, I feel like sending sending people there is safe. Um, uh, any other so, – so, like, uh, this is going to out me, but um, were you ever a fan of, like, Monty Python? Oh, for uh, sure, uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, boy, you know, <laughs> the nights that say me were some right? of my favorite. To be able I know. To say. Yeah, your last day on the program, Carmen. Enjoy it. So. <laughs> Right. So because I do think that as Christians, I mean, it's deadly serious. Life is deadly serious. Of course it is. There's no question about that. Sin is terribly serious. Um, But humor has a way of creating some space to talk about things, including ourselves, um, in a way that is... what it removes it removes a barrier like right it makes it us more vulnerable um it's a little bit like weeping um you know so uh it so i just want to encourage people that it's okay to laugh and it's certainly okay to laugh at ourselves um and it's okay to find humor in the places where the world looks at Christianity and Christians and finds us utterly ridiculous. It, 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 and Carmen, they've done studies, biological studies about the role of humor in our ongoing growth and development as people, and that they can actually trace within a person's biology that when there is sort of this humorous moment, and somebody like Bill Arnold, who runs the afternoon show here on Faith Radio, has this amazing gift to sort of interject something that gets you a little off balance, that kind of wobbles you with, with humor a bit. And they, they show that when that kind of thing happens, your, your brain literally takes sort of this hiccup. It, it, it kind of just resets itself. It's almost like powering down and powering back up again, and you're ready to take in more. And so in these deadly serious conversations, when all of a sudden humor kind of knocks us off balance, it actually creates more space in, in our ability to process, and, and it kind of resets the situation. It's a really interesting gift that God has given. I, I don't know what the Trinitarian life is exactly between the Father, Son, and Spirit, but, but if it is governed by love, I'm going to guess it also has a fair amount of, of whatever divine laughter would look like, right? I, and I don't entirely know, but I bet it's filled with divine laughter. Um, all right. So uh, if you were to hear John Cleese read the screw tape letters, you would know what Christian humor really For is. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So comedy and Christianity um, is an interesting conversation for you to lift up today with your friends and neighbors. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually had some serious things to say 
about comedy and Christianity. And if you want to read how Lewis actually wove comedy into really serious Christian discourse, you should check out uh, the Screwtape Letters if you're not going to check out uh, Lutheran satire or <laughs> these um, hilarious ultra-Orthodox Jews, ortho, uh, or, um, excuse me, ultra-Orthodox Jews um, poking fun at they themselves. They are pretty funny, indeed. Right? Pretty indeed. Funny. Hey, Peter Kapsner, as always, thank you so much, man. Yeah, so fun to be back with you, Carmen. And I just want to highlight once again that as I'm looking at the snow pouring out of the windows, if you wanted to demonstrate your uh, other-centeredness this week and don't, wanted to don't do a house swap I'm with not me. There. Well, don't if you tell wanted, people I'm not there. Don't tell people I'm not there suffering with them. <laughs> just a house swap, Carmen, just for a week. I'm just asking for a house swap, and that's all. <laughs> oh, we'll be right back. Now you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh All right, you and I live in a culture and a time when conversations about transgenderism, transgender identities, the church, what the Bible has to say about all of it, Um, are relevant and important. It's a conversation for which each and every one of us wants to be equipped. Preston Sprinkle has written a book on the topic. It's entitled Embodied. There's one foundational question really that underlies all the other ones. If someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their personal internal sense of self, which one determines who they really are and why? And how do we engage in that conversation as Christians today? All that up next with Dr. Preston Sprinkle. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. God is the God who follows. I wonder, have you sensed him following you through the kindness of a stranger, through a word well-spoken or a touch well-timed? Have you sensed his presence? If so, then release your doubts. Not easy to trust, you say? Try these ideas. Trust your faith and not your feelings. Your feelings have no impact on God's presence. Measure your value through God's eyes, not your own. God loves you. You are a family, and He will follow you all the days of your life. See the big picture, not the small. It's never too late to begin again. Perhaps your home and health have been threatened. The immediate result might be pain, but the long-term result might be finding a father you never knew, a father who will follow you all the days of your life. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. He is a biblical scholar. He's a, a speaker. He's a New York Times best-selling author. Um, he has a number of books and certainly conversations on the topic we are about to discuss. The newest book is Embodied. Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. Preston, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's really good to talk with you. Um, There's a number of places that we could start. Let's start with this. Um, This is a really robust topic in the culture. It is often a topic Christians either avoid or talk about in a way that is derogatory and um, degrading. So why are we having, why is it necessary as Christians to have this conversation, and why is it necessary for us to do so with the dignity of the individuals directly involved, uh, completely in view the whole time? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great place to start. And I would agree that typically Christians do yeah, either avoid the topic or you know talk about it in a way that isn't very loving, isn't very kind. And you know, I, I, it's hard to say you know wh- why that is. Um, I think it's different for different people. Um, I think there's a lot of fear, a lot of uh, ignorance um, toward people who say identify as trans or even the LGBTQ community as a whole. Um, I, I, I think churches, at least in my experience, are starting to get better. Um, but I think when, you know, when a topic or a person or an identity is just foreign to you, I think it's easy to, um, vilify it or, um, or just kind of brush it off or just ignore it. But I think deep down Christians are wanting to have this conversation. I think more and more kids are coming out as trans or non-binary. I think in the cult, you know, the culture is talking about it a lot more. So I think Christians, um, maybe not publicly, but at least privately, I think they are asking some really good and hard questions about this topic. So I think it is time to have the conversation. All right. So let's jump in to um, a conversation on, you know, going on in families across the country. My son, my daughter, my neighbor, my friend, my aunt, my uncle uh, is now identifying as trans. I have just learned this. Um, what do I say? How do I respond? How do I behave? What questions do I ask, not ask? Yeah. So the very first question, if somebody, you know, says, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm trans or, you know, they come out to you for the first time. The very first question is, you know, (laughs) thank you for telling me that. Can I get a better understanding of what, what that term even means? Because Mm -hmm. in this conversation, the term trans or transgender, or other identity markers, they can mean some very different things to different people. Um, so, for instance, I, I have, a, um, I mean, several friends who identify as trans, and for each one, that term means something different. For one person, I, I can think of one person in particular, you know, a biological male says he's trans, and when he says he's trans, he what he means is that he believes that he while being biologically male is actually a woman, like that that is who he says he is um uh, you know agree or disagree you know that that's his claim now somebody another friend of mine who is a very faithful follower of Jesus she also identifies as trans all she means is that she experiences a psychological condition called gender dysphoria uh this uh, this you know second friend of mine uh is a biological female believes she is a biological female does not say she was, you know, born in the wrong body. She's pursuing Jesus, um, you know, as as much as any of us are. And, and yet she experiences a psychological condition. So for her, the term trans is simply a a synonym for this, you know, unwanted um, condition that she has to wrestle with. So the term trans can mean many different things to many different people. If you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. So the, the first question is, hey, thank you for telling me that. Um, what do you mean by that term? Help me to understand, you know, what, what that term means to you. So I want to um, investigate something with you um, in, in terms of what you just said. I noted that as you were describing these two friends, um, you continued to consistently use pronouns that describe their biological identity Um, even when in the case of uh, the biological male friend who now identifies as female, um, he might now have his preferred pronoun be she. 
Um, can you just talk with us a little bit about the linguistic exercise yeah. that we're in the midst of? That, the, <laughs> yeah, that that's probably one of the um, most volatile aspects of this conversation. I think there's good people on both sides. Um, with regard to the first person I described, who is a biological male, he is still – he's not really um, – he, he, yeah, that, that one's a little tricky. I, I think in certain contexts, I, I might refer to him as whatever he prefers me to refer to him as. He has been um, in an old, you know, <laughs> he's an older person who has who is not really public to a lot of people. He's very used to being called. He he doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really think twice about it. My second friend, again, I, don't, I believe she's female, so she's fine with she. Uh, I, I do have other friends who do prefer different pronouns, whether it's, you know, uh, pronouns of the opposite sex um, or maybe even they or them, which is kind of more of a that, that one's a little awkward because it's a plural pronoun. But it's also it's also a bit neutral, too. It's not either, you know, he or she. Um, so my here's my general take is when I'm meeting somebody um, maybe I don't, I don't know who they are. Um, I, I refer to the pronouns or name that they want me to refer to them as. I want to meet somebody where they're at, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully, I, you know, so that I can be invited into a relationship and, and walk with the person and and hopefully, you know, um, help them in their journey, you know, towards Christ. So, um, but, but I, I would say I think that um, as part of Christian discipleship, our ultimate goal uh, should be to f- fully identify with the biological sex that God has has created us to be. Um, but that can be a journey for some people. And, and again, if somebody's suffering from a what can be a really severe psychological condition, you know, um, uh, learning to embrace their biological sex can be a, a, a an incredibly difficult journey. And those of us who don't have gender dysphoria don't really have a category for what that feels like. And yet we do have a category for what it's like to struggle with anger. You know, I know some Christians Mm -hmm. who have been believers for 50 years and I'll see them lash out at their wives or lust or, you know, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, you know, fall into porn use or whatever, over drink or, um, or overspend, or, you know, there's all kinds of things in the Christian life that are, you know, we'll go to the grave with a limp, a spiritual limp, you know? So uh, if somebody is suffering from a gender dysphoria, um, you know, it may be an ongoing journey to learn to, to embrace their biological sex. So Mm -hmm. while I I do think the ultimate goal would be to identify as, and, and embrace your biological sex, I want to meet somebody where they're at. And if, if using a pronoun they prefer is, um, you know, meeting them where they're at, then I'm going to do that as a, as a Christ follower. But, but I, 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 I want to acknowledge that there are really good Christians who would have good arguments to the contrary. And, and we can, you know, we can wrestle with those. All right. I'm talking with Dr. Preston Sprinkle. We are talking um, around and about his new book, Embodied. Uh, and let me just encourage you, if this is a conversation that is going on um, in your family, it's going on um, in your community. I mean, it, it is going on in the world. The question is whether or not we are prepared to be people who participate in the conversation um, in a way that is honest to God and also honest to the experience of people around us. Um, so let me just encourage you to consider Embodied, uh, Preston Sprinkle's new book. We're going to continue this conversation in the moral questions um, surrounding all of this and what the Bible has to say about human beings created 
male and female distinctly in the image of God, what that means uh, in terms of the transgender experiences of people around us today. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Preston Sprinkle, we are uh, talking about his brand new book, Embodied Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say. Um, Preston, so many directions that we could go, uh, so many questions swimming around. Um, So I think that for... You know, for many of us, there is in the church there is a conversation about um, genuine receptivity when a person who is trans identified um, wants to be a part of the church. What does that look like? How does that work? What if it's a kid who grew up in our church and is now um, identifying in this way? Can you just help us roam around in that complexity? Yeah, that yeah, that's a great word, <laughs> complexity. And and again, I think um, acknowledging that there's so many different journeys and meanings that underlie the the very trans identity that we're talking about, and and really getting to know the individual, um, um, and and the journey that God has them on. And and I think our ultimate posture should be, you know, we, we want all people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to welcome all people, you know. Now, now there's Christians obviously have a certain ethic of what it means to be human that we're welcoming people into. So being welcoming of all people does not mean that there's no sort of, uh, you know, discipleship or behavioral expectations. But when we're meeting somebody where they're at, there's no prerequisite to, to, to being welcoming. I mean, we were ungodly, Paul says, when God poured out his grace on us. You know, we were, we were, um, enemies of God when he loved us, when he shed his grace upon us. So we need to embody that same posture towards people who, you know, have a, what has been a very different kind of experience. Um, and, and also, I think we need to understand that there, there is a, there is oftentimes a history here between the church and LGBT people as a whole. So when you meet somebody who identifies as LGBT or especially, you know, T, the transgender identity, um, oftentimes they may have all kinds of stigma and, and assumptions and maybe a lot of pain and shame associated with the Christian church. So it's not like they're, you know, coming to you on neutral grounds, like they're coming to you with probably a lot of really negative assumptions about Jesus, about the church, about Christians. So I think seeking to undo some of those really negative assumptions that Christians are hateful or unloving or unkind or, you know, love to shame and and say mean things about trans people. Like I think undoing some of those assumptions up front is, is also really good. Um, and also, you know, we, we want to welcome people into a discipleship journey with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and to do that, I think we need to be um, extremely kind and loving up front. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Um, so we need to embody that kindness of God if we desire people to come to that, uh, re- you know, relationship with God that involves repentance. So, Preston, um, I-, I guarantee you there are people listening right now who um, are wondering things about the culture and um, why there seems to be a rising tide of uh, individuals who 
uh, find incongruence, experience incongruence between their biological uh, sex and their personal identity. Can you just talk a little bit about um, maybe why, by your observation, there is a uh, seeming growing percentage of individuals who um, experience this incongruence? Yeah, and it's not just uh, you're you're spot on. Um, it's not just seeming. It's it's been well documented. And in fact, um, one gender, the main gender clinic in the UK, the uh, Tavistock Center, has seen a has documented a five thousand percent increase <laughs> among biological females who, in the last ten years, have been coming to their gender clinic, you know, with some kind of incongruence. Um, I think with males, it's about 2000% increase in the last 10 years. And this has been r- about this, you know, the, the same kind of percentages exist across most uh, European or Western um, countries, including the United States, uh, Canada, Australia, and so on, um, which, which that's interesting that it is kind of a Western, largely white, um, <laughs> educated, you know, wealthy uh, culture that's experiencing this. So why the increase? There's two main responses that people will give to that. Um, some people say, well, because our culture is more accepting now, you know, um, people who would have been publicly out with their identity 10, 20 years ago um, are now coming out with their identity. But the percentage has been the same all along. They just had to keep it in secret. That That's one response to the, the rise in percentage percentages. Another response would say, well, that might be part of the reason for the seemingly, you know, high increase in numbers. Um, but it does seem that culture is playing some role, that society is playing some role in, you know, shaping or nudging people into this trans identity. So um, I, I think there's a, a bit of truth in in both of these responses. I do think the second response, there's there's definitely something there. Um, and again, this has been well documented that the, the, the seemingly the sudden rise in, in, in teenagers identifying as trans non-binary gender queer does seem to be influenced at least in part, um, with cultural influence, you know, getting ideas from heavy social media use, you know, other people, you know, um, giving them these, these very categories and, and people kind of being, I don't want to say wooed into it. That's, that might be a little too strong, but in some cases that, that is what's going on, that there, there are people who are kind of um, planting ideas in people's um, minds uh, to embrace this identity. So, And that gets really – I mean I, <laughs> this whole conversation is so volatile and everything I said is super debated. But um, it, in my research and experience, there's definitely something in, in, this, in, in society that's, that's um, playing the role here. All right, I'm going to direct you, if you're listening right now, to check out what Preston is posting at PrestonSprinkle.com, um, namely a series of podcasts on this topic, uh, Diversity of Trans. Um, it's just awesome. I listened to part four. There's no way we could talk um, mm. uh, about that topic in any way that is uh any better than the way that it's done there in that podcast on detransitioning and gender ideology. It's just excellent. So really want to direct you there, PrestonSprinkle.com. The book is Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. If this is your heart issue, if this is an issue in your home, um, we do have a limited number of books to share with you today. And so you just text the word book 
to 877-933-2484. I really want to put these books in the hands of people who are dealing with this in their own families, in their own communities, for whom this conversation is really raw right now. Um, The book is embodied. We do have complimentary copies to share um, with a limited number of listeners. So go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484 if this is really your, your heartbeat issue today. Preston Sprinkle, thank you so much for being with us. You guys can visit with Preston at PrestonSprinkle.com. We'll be right back. All right, you and I are going to head out into the world that God so loves today, and we are going to do so as ambassadors of a king and a kingdom that the kingdoms of this world do not recognize nor understand. Hmm. So that makes us weird and a little bit wacky and totally wonderful. God loves you. You belong to him if you belong to Christ. And so I want you to walk today worthy of that calling, worthy of the calling, Christian, Christian. I just love it. All right. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.